wonderful it is to greet you in the name of the one who is and was and is to come. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and yes, this is Faith Is, where we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I always enjoy greeting people in the name of the one who is and was and is to come. And especially, I guess, at Advent, that has meaning because we're celebrating the one who came and the one who is to come. And of course, he is forever. So here we go on Advent week three. And we remember all of the steps toward that. And and we anticipate the coming of Jesus, both in celebrating his birth in Bethlehem and in anticipating his return, because he promised that he'll be back and he will And so that makes a lot of things special about this time of the year. We're going to take a look at a few things, but first off, so I don't forget, I mentioned on a previous program that speaker Mike Johnson was the real deal. He was a faithful follower of Christ, and we can rejoice that someone of principle and character is in one of the highest offices in our country, speaker of the House of Representatives. And a lot of stuff gets said about all the political stuff that goes on. And and we who are followers of Christ ought not overlook that, but we shouldn't be dismayed by it either. And I was reminded about that again because this week I received a letter in the mail. It was a form letter sent to a lot of people, so it wasn't like exclusively to me, but it was from an organization that I work with in Florida, the Florida Family Policy Council. That group is led and has been led by a long-time Floridian. He's been involved in the public policy arena for many years. His name's John Stemberger. And one of the things he mentioned in that update letter to all the people that support them was that Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House of Representatives for United States government, is a faithful follower of Jesus. And I just wanted to reinforce that because I, I sometimes think we who get caught up in some of this stuff, and it's probably not you, you probably have a much better sense of this, but some people get caught up in all the things that go on, and they get a little anxious and concerned, and sometimes there's reason to be concerned, but, you know, we need to rest easy that God has promised to be with us. That's never more true than the promise we celebrate this time of year. God has promised that even if the worst happens, He has our backs. We, the people of God, we are his followers. He has our backs, and we shouldn't worry about that. And we can rejoice that he has strategically placed someone in our government that we can trust, and we should pray for, and we should support. It's an impossible job. We know that. He's not going to be able to please everyone. He knows that. But, you know, God has a way of using things to accomplish his purposes, and who knows, maybe Speaker Johnson is there in that place for just such a time as this, and we need to give thanks for that. I don't think we should overlook that or treat that lightly. And by the way, you're going to hear a lot of hand-wringing about what goes on in Washington. Pretty soon that'll stop because they're all going to leave town and and not be up to the nonsense that they sometimes are up to. But you hear a lot of hand-wringing about this or that, about the government, Would you just relax when they have their conversations or should we say political wars in Washington? That's just the process. It's been going on for years, long before you and I were even aware of it. From the beginning of the country's founding, there have been enormous 
enormous struggles in the legislature. People have very different views of things, and, and the rhetoric gets heated, and it sometimes has been worse in the past. So we as Christians, we need to say, that's them doing their job. We shouldn't be all upset about that. We should just say, fine, guys, have at it and sort it out and do the right thing for the American people. Well, I just want to make sure we didn't overlook that because sometimes people just let some of these things worry them. And especially at this time of the year when we're, we're reminded that a new king was born. Now, emphasize king. You know, we forget that sometimes Jesus is king. That means he is the supreme sovereign, the Lord of all. That means he rules and reigns above all earthly governments, all principalities, all of that stuff. And we can be relieved to know that he is in ultimate charge of the universe. Yes, we have our responsibilities and we should step up to them. But certainly in the midst of all of that, we can rest easy that he's got this handled. Well, let's talk about some other interesting things this time of the year. Last week, I promised that we'd revisit this list of Christmas carols our church made. And so we're going to do that. You may remember earlier this year, it's been a while back, so you would have had to have been listening for a long time. And thank you for listening. But we as a church here, I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. We as a church, we took on a little project and we decided we would identify the hymns that every Christian should know. I got that idea from someone else I heard talking about it from his personal perspective. I thought it would be helpful for our church. I could pick them, you could pick them, but it was a lot more interesting when our church picked them. And I said at the time that we would revisit this at this time of the year, and we'd choose the Christmas carols that every Christian should know. Now, I didn't ask people for their favorites. I asked them what were the Christmas carols that they believed every Christian should know. And so last week we talked about five of them. I want to talk about the the, the other five. I, I kind of narrowed it down to ten. We had ten Christmas carols and and a few honorable mentions. It's just really hard to know what to leave off sometime when the, the, the numbers of ballots cast and the votes were really close. But we had to narrow it down, so I came up with ten that were the ten Christmas carols that our church believed every Christian should know. And number ten was Go Tell It on the Mountain. We talked about that last week. Number nine, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, that great hymn. Hark the Herald Angels Sing, that Charles Wesley text that we all love to sing was number seven. Number six, O Come All Ye Faithful. And number five, uh, whoops, sorry, what did I get? Ten, Go Tell. Nine, O Come. Eight, Hark the Herald Angels. Seven, O Come All Ye Faithful. And six, Away in a Manger. There, I think we got it straight. I think many of us are familiar with all of those. Some of them are more familiar than others. A lot of people are not real familiar with O Come, O Come, Emmanuel because it's a little different style. In a minor key, it's a chant. We don't exactly sing it like chant, but we come close. And it's a really evocative tune and text of our prayer that God would come. And specifically using the word Emmanuel, meaning God with us, that he would come and be with us. So now it leaves us five more to talk about. And this was very interesting. 
I identified five, but we had tie selections. In other words, the same number of people chose three of them, and the same number of people chose two of them. So we have a tie. I called it a tie for second place because there were three that all had the same number of votes. So I want to identify those, talk about them a little bit as we think about preparing for Christmas. And as you think about what are the Christmas carols you think every Christian should know. Well, one of the number two carols was O Little Town of Bethlehem. Pretty familiar to a lot of people, written by a man named Phillips Brooks, who was a minister. He wrote it for his Sunday school, actually. It was written about 1865. And if you have a little context for history, that means the Civil War had just ended. And it was the same year that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. Kind of a difficult time in our country. Well, that same year, 1865, Phillips Brooks, a minister, took a trip to Israel to visit the Holy Land. Well, he visited lots of places like all of us who visit Israel do. And on Christmas Eve in 1865, he visited Bethlehem and what we call the Shepherd's Field. He went to the Church of the Nativity because that's the traditional site of the birth of Jesus. And it was that visit that inspired him to write the text to a little town of Bethlehem. Now, some of our other carols are, how should I say, energetic or celebratory in a way that O Little Town of Bethlehem is not. It emphasizes the quietness of the anticipation, the quietness of the coming of Jesus. And the final stanza is actually a prayer. We'll get to that in just a minute. The tune, interestingly enough, the tune was commissioned by Reverend Brooks. The organist at his church was a man named Louis Redner, and so in 1868, now that's a few years after he wrote the text, three if you're counting, he commissioned Mr. Redner to write a tune to go with the text. So he he did. Louis Redner wrote the tune. It's named after him to this day. You look it up, the tune name, in case you didn't know, hymn tunes have names, almost always have names. His, this one is named Lewis, after him, spelled a little differently. His name is Lewis, L-E-W-I-S, but the hymn tune, for some reason, is L-O-U-I-S. But this organist wrote the tune, and they use it at Christmas in 1868. At the time, Mr. Redner wrote that neither of them expected it to outlive that usage. They thought it would be for their church. And, and for that year, and that was enough, they weren't concerned about it any beyond, beyond that, but we all know it has lived well beyond that time. And it's, it's really one of those Christmas carols that we all tend to appreciate. And, and the final stanza of that, let me look that up for you. The, the final stanza really is a prayer for our times, but, but I would encourage you to think about this. I, I've noticed this more by going through these hymns this year. Uh, really, the, the stanzas of these hymns are so fitting for our times, and they often have just amazing, amazing prayers that fit exactly the situation of our day. So, O Little Town of Bethlehem, in this final stanza, the one we usually sing as the last stanza, is a wonderful prayer for our times. O holy child of Bethlehem, 
descend on us, we pray. Yeah, we need the Lord to come, don't we? Cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. What a wonderful image. Cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. Is that your aspiration? Well, pray this prayer. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. Oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord, Emmanuel. And we really do need that for our time. Now, thinking about Bethlehem has been kind of a thing for me this year. I've thought about Bethlehem even before I was working on this section of hymn or Christmas carols uh, for every Christian should know. I was thinking about Bethlehem. And, and the reason I was thinking about it is because I was privileged to visit Bethlehem some years ago. Took a tour, some call it a pilgrimage, and I think it really was a pilgrimage for me, very impactful. It's amazing what I remember and took away from that visit, uh, simply amazing. I'd heard people say that that was the case, and, and I didn't disbelieve them, but I always thought I needed to learn more so I could be better prepared. Uh, you don't need to worry about that. Just go if you have the chance. Well, I realize now it may be some time before people can visit the land of Israel, what we often call the Holy Land, because of the the uh, terrorist atrocities committed by Hamas in October. But I've been thinking about Bethlehem and wondering what was going on there this time of the year, and I I did a little reading about it and. Yeah, the bulk of the Christmas celebration has been called off. I don't know what they will finally come up with, but most of the people that were planning to visit Bethlehem will not. I read about one hotel owner who said all of the emails he's been getting are cancellations. Well, that doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise you. What did surprise me was he said people are even canceling for next year already. I was a little surprised at that. But on the other hand, we don't know how long this situation, this war in that area of Israel is going to continue. We do know there have been some incidents in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a largely Palestinian area within Israel. There are fewer and fewer Christians that live there all the time. And I remember when we went, it was really quite interesting. When we left to go on the trip, there was a certain amount of uncertainty if we'd be able to visit Bethlehem. The tour host did not give us any certainty that we could go. Well, I figured there's a lot of things to see. If we couldn't see Bethlehem, I wasn't really worried about that. But as it turned out, we were able to spend a day going to Bethlehem. And I remember very clearly we... We drove, it's not very far from Jerusalem where we were staying. We drove toward Bethlehem and there was a military checkpoint, just like I had seen on television news, like you may have seen as well. There was a military checkpoint that we had to go through in order to go in to visit Bethlehem. Soldiers, actually armed soldiers, got on the bus and checked us all out to make sure we were who we said we were, simple tourists coming on a pilgrimage to visit the land of, of Jesus, the Holy Land. Well, we got through that without any real incident. It was just a kind of a, a striking thing to me to, to be subjected to that kind of thorough examination. They weren't unkind or, or unpleasant at all. Don't misunderstand that. It was just they were, they were serious about what they were doing, and they wanted to make sure. And so I think that was all good for all of us. Well, we went on, traveled on into the city. And we parked kind of at the bottom of a little hill, not real steep, but a little walk up the incline to 
to where we were going. And I remember it was real striking to get off the bus. I hadn't been exposed to this, and I still really haven't been except for that trip. But getting off the bus to be greeted by a, a, a uniformed police officer representing the Palestinian Authority. Well, he was doing his job, and, and he was both, I guess, greeting us, but checking to make sure we were tourists like we said we were, and, and of course we were. We walked up the hill a little bit. It wasn't a steep hill. It wasn't a long walk, as I remember it. And, and I can remember very clearly being so amazed that as I walked up there and stepped into Manger Square, how I recognized it. Now, I'd never been there. It wasn't like I had remembered it from a previous trip, but I had watched the reports from Manger Square at Christmas time, some of the celebrations that had gone on. And so it was really real fascinating to to say, to feel as though I had been there before, even though I hadn't. I was a little surprised that it wasn't bigger. I expected maybe a much bigger area, but it wasn't. We walked on through and into the Church of the Nativity. And again, it was very very interesting because it was though I recognized the interior of the Church of the, of the Nativity. I'd never been there, but I seemed to remember it somehow from following news reports and other things that I'd seen of things that had taken place there. Not always pleasant incidents, some terrorist stuff had taken place there. But we walked into the Church of the Nativity, and then we walked forward to the front. And churches in Israel are quite different than what I'm used to. The um, decorating taste and other things are just different. So it was a little little jarring in that sense because it wasn't like any church I'd been around. But that that's neither here nor there. That's just the way it was. Well, we went forward, and as we faced the front of the church, off, off to the right was a doorway, and we went through that doorway and down the steps, and below where the main altar area of the church was, was the area that's designated as, as the traditional site of the birthplace of Jesus. And I'd seen that area as well. I could remember it from when I was a kid. And people came back from Israel with their pictures, and there was the, the star in the floor identifying the place of the birthplace of Jesus. And I could look around and see the other things. Very small area, but really quite, quite uh, how should I say, moving to, to think that you're there at the traditional site of the birthplace of the Savior of the world. And uh, that, that was really, really fascinating to me. Now, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not, and I wasn't, under any illusions that that was, with certainty, the site of the birth of Jesus. As far as I can tell, realistically, we don't know exactly where he was born, but that was, was and is the traditional site identified and, and set apart as the birthplace of Jesus. Well, we left there. And I remember walking out and walking down the little hill again to catch the bus because we were going to another place in Bethlehem. We had already eaten lunch in Bethlehem, and now we were going to visit a a shop that the tour guides knew well and uh, actually served us very well. A very impressive visit to that shop. Well, we started down the hill, and and people want to know if it was dangerous in Israel, and and that was one of the places that I remember very clearly that the biggest obstacle we faced was the street vendors trying to sell us something for an American dollar, and but there there was no threat to us. We felt no no danger. It was just a different environment, and of course that's the hustle of those kids trying to make a living, and it reminds me as I think about this of how difficult it is for all of the people there in Israel right now. 
not just because of the violence that's taken place, but we often forget as Americans how dependent so many of them are on tourism. I mentioned the hotel owner and all the cancellations. I saw a picture in one of the uh, articles that I looked at of closed shop windows, or not windows, but but rolled rolled down doors, like garage doors, where they would open the shop for tourists, but they were closed because there were no tourists. And you know, one of the sad things about all of this, and I'm not in any position to to tell you the ins and outs of all of this. I think it's pretty clear who the aggressors were on October 7th. I don't have any doubt about that. I think it's entirely understandable that Israel is taking steps to protect itself so that that would not happen again. But in terms of the human cost, there is a toll because when there aren't tourists there, the people suffer. That's their livelihood, many of them. The shop that we visited when I was there many years ago, I'm sure they depended a great deal on our purchases to sustain their lives. They were in business to sell their products. Well, now there are no tourists. And I think that one of the sad things about the whole situation in Israel is that innocent people who probably are not caught up, they may have opinions in it, but they didn't commit any of the atrocities, but they're all suffering. Some of them had no connection to it at all but they're all going to suffer because tourism really is a big deal in Israel. And so as you think about it, you might pray for the Christians there. You might pray for the people there because it's going to be a hard time. And I understand it's entirely possible that it will be a number of years before people are confident enough to go back to visit. I can certainly understand that having been there. I'm not sure whether it would keep me from going again. It's just such an impactful visit to go that it just, uh, I think about it sometimes about going again. I haven't done anything serious about that, but you might be alert. Maybe you'll have an opportunity, and I certainly would encourage you to, to consider that. Well, we went, and I think the sequence was, we went from the Church of the Nativity, got on the bus, and, and went to the shop where we made our purchases of, of some really nice things that I was able to get to remember our visit to Bethlehem. And then we went out, got on the bus again, went out to the shepherd's field. And this, again, we don't know if that's where the shepherds were exactly. We have a pretty good idea where they might have been. But again, some of the exactness has been lost to history. And, and that's okay. We don't need to venerate a specific site. We know what happened. The Bible tells us what happened. But the Shepherd's Field is just kind of a, a wonderful place to visit because you can see, if not the exact place, a type of, of field that the shepherds might have been. There are rolling hills there. You can look at, out across the hills. It's really quite spectacular. You can imagine what it must have been like for the shepherds when the angel suddenly appeared to them. Uh, but that was really impactful. And all of this is what Phillips Brooks would have seen when he visited Bethlehem and it inspired him to write our choice, one of our choices for the carols that every Christian should know, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Well, take heart, I'm not going to spend that much time on every one of these final five, but I just thought that was just important for us to think about some of the things that are going on these days and how they affect the world and the people and the difficulties that people are going to have as a result of the war. And it affects a place that I've been and a place that a lot of us have seen on television. Uh, I don't know if there will be even a service there on Christmas Eve now. And, it's, and that should sadden all of us.
it saddens me to think that people can't make that pilgrimage and see the traditional site of the birth of Jesus. Well, so that's number two, one of number of the number two. Now, there are five of these three number twos and two number ones. If that's not confusing enough, I'll try to make it more confusing as we go on. But the the, the next one that was in the number two slot by our choices was O Holy Night. And this was a tune that was first written in French and translated by a man named John Dwight and, and put in the much the form that we have it today. And Translators sometimes don't get enough credit because it is a challenge to to translate a a hymn-type or carol-type text into another language and make it work. But clearly, John Dwight made it work. The tune was written by a virtuoso musician named Adolf Adam. and, And this idea of O Holy Night as one of the Christmas carols every Christian should know kind of surprised me. Now, I didn't go into this thinking people had to choose the ones I thought they should choose. I I wasn't thinking that at all. But I guess I didn't think they would choose this one because it's not the easiest tune to sing. Uh, Yeah, people like it, and obviously I I would have been aware of that. But I did not necessarily expect them, them, our church, our people, to choose this as one of the Christmas carols every Christian should know. But they did. And um, again, it's a text for our times. And that's, that's kind of been striking to me as I've looked at these over and over, of how really the, they speak to the, the world we live in. And it, the text starts about, oh, holy night, and about the stars and the Savior's birth. And then the, in the first stanza, long lay the world in sin and error pining. It's an amazing description of the agony of the world trapped in sin. And it says, Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. How many people don't recognize, don't understand, need a reimagination of their worth before God? A thrill of hope. See, it gives us hope that Jesus came. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. And it is a new and glorious morning because a new king has arrived from heaven and he rules and reigns over everything. And that is good news. The stanza goes on to admonish us. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices. Oh, night divine. And can you see the shepherds in that field hearing the angel voices? Oh, night. Oh, night when Christ was born. Oh, holy night. Oh, night divine. Well, there are plenty of other things that that have resonance for today through these Christmas carols. And, And you know, one of the things that stood out to me was in the third stanza, because it's describing what Jesus came to do. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. And Christians have been and were and are at the forefront of putting an end to slavery. It continues to this day, sadly enough. But think about this. Chains shall he break. For the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. Now, one of the things that's caught my attention is this whole idea that that has come to us right out of Marxist ideology and has been adopted by way too many people that you're, you're in either one of two categories. Either you're an oppressed person or an oppressor. And my, what a terrible thing 
What a terrible way to think about life. But here, the carol reminds us, in his name, in Jesus' name, all oppression shall cease. So we need to take hope and to take heart. So many people get caught up in this and think we just have to turn the oppressed into oppressors to solve that. And Jesus says, no, all oppression will cease. In fact, much of Marxist ideology seems focused on taking the people who they identify as oppressed and turning them into oppressors. And so you oppress the people they think are oppressors. And what a mess. You're never going to straighten things out that way. But in the name of Jesus, all oppression shall cease and joy will be in its place. I don't know if you get that. I I don't think I really know how to communicate that effectively. I hope I'm making some good attempt. But this whole idea is such a liberation, such a liberation, that the coming of Jesus breaks all of these chains of the things that we're slaves to. I, I read about, hear about, you probably know some people who have had addictions, problems of one or another, and those chains can be broken by the coming of Christ who comes to give us new life within, a new and glorious morn, as the carol says. And all oppression shall cease. We maybe feel some of the effects of oppression. Maybe you've had people do things that were real harm to you. And you might identify and say, well, I was put down by that. Let me tell you, there is one who lifts you up. And you do not have to be identified as a person who was put down or feel subject to that. You can be liberated and join the kingdom of the king who was born in Bethlehem. And that's very good news. It's a king that was born. It's a king that changes everything. His name is Jesus. Well, we're going to take a break. I'm going to be back. We're going to finish these carols. I'm Pastor Rick. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the Wellness Company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system to keep our bodies free from harmful bacteria, viruses, and toxins become less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. 
Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. The buildup of spike proteins is dangerous to your health. Global Healing's Foreign Protein Cleanse detoxes your body, removing the spike proteins, allowing your body to repair from within. Formulated by Dr. Edward Group and by Dr. Brian Artis, Foreign Protein Cleanse targets and detoxes spike proteins in the body. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe, air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. With the rise of independent media, we are now AmericaOutloud.news. For the genius of the United States is not found in its executives or legislatures, nor its ambassadors, authors, colleges, or churches, nor even in its newspapers or inventors. The genius of the United States is we the people. AmericaOutloud.news. Liberty and justice for all. It's the season that we do take heart with the encouragement that a Savior was born to us, a new king has arrived to handle things for us. And take heart, it's not going to take us quite as long to get through the rest of these carols as it did on the first ones. We've got plenty of things to cover and we won't get over all of it, but you never get over all of it, right? There's always so much that God has for us and that we benefit from hearing, especially this time of the year. I do want to take just a minute before we get into some of the other things, to remind you to check out the website, americaoutloud.news. That's the network that carries this program, and there's a lot of things there on the website, including a store where you can find some good prices on excellent products, and I want to encourage you to go there and check those out. That's americaoutloud.news. And there are other programs you may want to sample and find out about. There's plenty of interesting content out there, and I want to encourage you to go to americaoutloud.news dot news and look it over look everything over including the store there are going to be some changes coming up to the website and you'll want to check those as they unfold over the next couple of weeks that's america out loud dot news well i'm pastor rick and we've been going through the christmas carols that every christian should know as determined by my church our church in cape coral florida i'm the pastor diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, and we took this project on and we identified them. And we, interestingly enough, we chose three carols to be in the number two spot. And we've talked about O Little Town of Bethlehem and O Holy Night. And so we want to talk about one more as a number two. How can three be number two? Well, that's just kind of the way it worked out, and that's fine. But the third number two carol that every Christian should know is the first Noel. You maybe are familiar with that. It's an easily singable tune. Uh, people like it. I did not really 
think that it would be chosen as a carol every Christian should know. But then again, I've said more than once, it wasn't about what I thought, it was about what people thought, and they believed that this was one every Christian should know. Now, the first Noel, we don't know who wrote the text. It originally had nine stanzas. And by the way, when you think about hymns and some of these carols, it's not unusual for them to have many stanzas, many more than we sing. Uh, Sometimes they're shortened because they're just cumbersome to sing that long. Sometimes they're shortened because certain stanzas stand out better over time. But in this case, there were nine stanzas. It was first printed in 1833, and that's another characteristic of all of these carols. All of the carols on our list of of the ten Christmas carols every Christian should know are older than we might realize. It kind of reminds me that we shouldn't give up the heritage of our Christian faith. A lot of people think if it's old, it's not good. That's just not biblically true. And we need to recognize that sometimes things that have been around a long time have been around a long time for a good reason. And that's the case with these, these carols that we've identified. Well, interestingly enough, the, the text is unknown. We don't know who wrote it. And the tune comes from a folk song. And so there's a certain amount of, of uh, mystery about this. It did come to us as an English traditional carol, so it was not written in another language that had to be translated. And the hymnal we are currently using at our church does have six of the original nine stanzas. Now, the other thing that we should make sure we point out, and I always find this amusing, uh, it's not a deal breaker for me, I'm not quite that stiff about things, some things, but not this, is that there was a lot of poetic license taken in the writing of the first Noel. A lot of poetic license. Let me give you an example. And so if you sing it and you and you find some of it jarring, it's not you, it's the it, it's the text. But in stanza two, it says they looked up and saw a star. Now the they they're referring to is the shepherds from stanza one. Well, we don't have any indication in the Bible that they looked up and saw a star. But they looked up, according to the first Noel, and saw a star shining in the east beyond them far. Hmm, that sounds like the wise men more than the shepherds, and and maybe the writer of the poetry did make that leap and just used they and assumed we would understand it was wise men. Uh, I don't know, but it is a little interesting. Uh, It also says that the star gave great light, and to the earth it gave great light. Well, we don't have any indication of that from the Bible, and most of the stars don't give great light, except, of course, the sun, if you call it a star, during the day. But that's poetic license, and so it continued both day and night, and we don't have any idea that the star was visible day and night. But I don't mention that to discredit the carol at all. I've used it as a worship leader for years and never been dismayed by that. A little dismayed when I first discovered it many years ago that that there were some of these oddities, because I'd never really noticed it. I guess I just had enjoyed the carol, and I hope you will just enjoy it as well. But we don't want to be naive about it either. And yes, a lot of times poets take poetic license, and so it was here, and so it is, and we don't mind. Right? We don't mind. Now, there are two remaining carols on our list of the Christmas carols every Christian should know. Only two. 
We've identified eight so far. We did have some honorable mentions. So let me give you those honorable mentions because there is one interesting thing that came out of that. There were five that we identified as honorable mention. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. It came upon the midnight clear. Mary, did you know? We three kings. And what child is this? Well, I don't think too many of them are surprises. There was a one that was kind of surprising to me. I was kind of glad. I just didn't think people were familiar with it enough to choose it, but apparently they are, and they did. But of all 15 of the carols that we identified, including the the 10, and then this list of honorable mentions, all but one of those carols is quite old, has been around a while, not a recent composition. I wasn't against a recent composition being on the list, not not at all. I just wasn't sure whether there would be one, but there was one indeed. Mary, Did You Know is a fairly recent composition. It's a new carol, if you will, or a new song might be a better way to describe it, in our seasonal usage that didn't exist years ago. It was written, and now it has taken its place, and, and in many settings, It's one of those popular ones. And here our church said it's a carol every Christian should know. And if you examine the text of Mary, did you know, it is quite moving. And and it's a very good, and this is the way some of us who are have a background in choral music and in singing, we often take time to notice, does the text and the tune go together? Do they work together? For example, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel works very well together. It's a very evocative tune that fits a text of longing and praying that Emmanuel would come. In a similar way, Mary, Did You Know, has that kind of setting that that is questioning, because that's a question. Did you realize, Mary, when this? Did you realize when that? And that's that's a very, very fascinating and I think effective way that the songwriter has put the tune and the text together. But Mary, Did You Know, is the only newer, we, we might say, newer carol on this list. Okay, so we have two left. Now, having given you the, the eight and then the honorable mentions, I would be pretty sure almost everyone listening can identify and pull to mind the two remaining carols. I'm pretty sure that when I mention one of them, you will immediately realize the other one is on the list as well. So, how should I say? Uh, Think about that a second. Challenge yourself. Can you identify the two that people named as the two that every Christian should know, the ones who receive the most attention on our list? Well, again, we had a tie, so there are two number ones if you want to go down that route. And the first one I'll mention is Silent Night, Holy Night. It was a text written in German by a a pastor named Joseph Moore. It was written on Christmas Eve of 1818. So like I said, some of these have been around a long time. So Joseph Moore, Pastor Moore, wrote this text in German, December 24th, 1818. And the organist of the church, who also taught at the local school, his name was Franz Gruber, and he wrote the tune that we associate with Silent Night. And again, what a great joining of text and tune. It's also, you probably have heard the story. 
that on that Christmas Eve they had a problem and they weren't sure what to do but they figured it out the problem was the organ was broken the organ in the chapel where they held Christmas Eve service was broken they couldn't use it so Franz Gruber wrote this carol and it was originally intended to be accompanied by and was accompanied by a guitar for that first service and, and as someone who's played a little bit of the guitar, not a lot, don't call me a guitarist at this point. But as someone who's familiar with that, I always thought that was kind of nice to think about that a guitar was used for a silent night, holy night, on that first Christmas Eve. Someone said, because the organ didn't work, two men did. And they together created one of the most beloved Christmas carols of all time. And certainly it merits its list or its place on our list of carols that every Christian should know. Silent night, holy night. And by the way, just in case you might ever have an occasion to do this or might go out of your way a little bit, I want to let you know that in Frankenmuth, Michigan, there is a small reproduced chapel of the chapel where Silent Night was first presented that Christmas Eve in 1818. It's not a large building. It's very nicely done, very impressively done. It's on the same property as a business that sells more Christmas stuff than you've ever imagined possible, named Bronner's. But it's in Frankenmuth, Michigan. They have the, the Silent Night Chapel there, and it's very much worth your while to go see that. If you happen to be in that area, take a little side trip and go visit the Silent Night Chapel. You can see the walk around the outside. You can go in and see the recreation of the chapel inside, take pictures. Just kind of enjoy the idea that, wow, these people cared enough to build a small replica of that chapel where Silent Night was first presented to the glory of God. I, I think you'd, you'd really enjoy doing that. I've been there a couple of times. Anytime I'm in Frankenmuth, which isn't often because it's not... It's not in a place where we typically go. We went out of our way to go there uh, earlier this fall. But I really enjoyed walking out and seeing it, even though it looked the same as it did the time before. I still walked through it, still took all the pictures, so I could remember that visit. And you might want to do that as well. Well, the second number one, now I'm sure you've figured it out, all of you who are trying to unwrap the mystery, and that is Joy to the World. Joy to the World. Now, Silent Night and Joy to the World are two carols that... I'm not exactly sure why I started doing this, but I did a few years ago. When I planned worship during Advent leading up to Christmas Eve, I always have saved a few carols for the Christmas Eve service. I, I don't mean to, to uh, how should I say, withhold them from people. That's not the point. But I just wanted to, to make Christmas Eve special. And I know people sing these carols in other settings. It's not like they haven't heard them or had the opportunity. I, I'm not saying you have to not hear them or sing them early. That's not the point at all. But what I have always tried to do is to make that Christmas Eve service special. And so toward the end, we sing Silent Night during the candlelight portion of the service. And then as the very last declaration at the end of the Christmas Eve service, after the candlelight service is finished, we bring the lights back up and we sing joyously, joy to the world, the Lord has come. And this was a text that comes out of the English community from England. It was written by Isaac Watts, who was a minister there, sometimes referred to as the father of English hymnody. 
he was a he was the man that introduced into the English speaking church the idea that we can have hymns written by people. Up until that point, the church believed that they could only sing words that came from the Bible. And so you would have what they called Psalter hymnals. In other words, the Psalms would be the hymns that were sung. Well, Isaac Watts introduced the idea of what we call hymns of human composure. That means people like you and like me have written songs that we sing in church now. It doesn't all come from the strict language of the Bible. Indeed, the He was kind of a crossover guy in that regard, and this particular text comes from Psalm 98. It's a paraphrase of Psalm 98. It was set to the tune that was written by George Frederick Handel. You may remember his name from an oratorio called Messiah. Well, Handel wrote a lot of things, and, and Lowell Mason adapted the tune to the text of Joy to the World, the text that Isaac Watts wrote, Lowell Mason, took one of G.F. Handel's, George Frederick Handel's tunes, and used it for joy to the world. A lot of times, Lowell Mason has been called the father of American church music. So think of the history that's tied up in this. So uh, It's just a good thing for us to remember that what we have inherited matters, and we should not, we should not, must not, just dismiss all of that because it's been around a little while. A lot of things have been around a little while. In fact, some of you have been around a little while, right? Yeah, so, me too. And sometimes that's good, because it gives us a different perspective on things, a helpful perspective. Now, I want to finish up by, by referring to a Christmas story that doesn't, at first, seem like a Christmas story. You know, this is a time of the year when people like me, we like to see if we can find, oh, how should I say, a true story that somehow relates the essence of Christmas. And I was thinking about that. I was thinking, well, I should find one of those. And I looked a little bit, and I did not find what I was looking for. And I think that it was the direction that God was leading me in to remind me that the best stories really come out of the Bible. And there's a story in the life of Jesus that at first does not seem like a Christmas story. But I think it has real relation to the coming of Jesus, and we should not overlook it. I also know that many times during this time of the year, we'll see slogans like, Jesus is the reason for the season, and that's a good reminder. A lot of times we'll hear people say, or try to answer the question, I should say, of why did Jesus come? And and that's good, and that's appropriate. And, and I want to answer that in a way that maybe you haven't thought of. That's in a way I hadn't thought of before, but, you know, sometimes God unfolds these things to us when we're ready for them. And I have long been taken by, fascinated by, attracted to the verses in Isaiah 61. They were particularly meaningful to me uh, for a number of reasons. One, what I was wrestling with, had God really called me to ministry and what did that mean? And and I wrestled at the time with, could I be a minister and, and did I have to be like some of the ministers I saw? And I think I've mentioned this before, I knew I couldn't be like them. And, and God seemed to use this to point out to me that I didn't have to be like them. But in Isaiah chapter 61, there's these fascinating verses. And I want to read a few of them to kind of set the stage for this and the context, because these verses meant a lot to Jesus in his lifetime. Isaiah 61, verse 1, from the New Revised Standard Version, updated edition. 
The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, to display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Well, that's a very hopeful prophecy, reading through the first four verses there of Isaiah 61, a very hopeful prophecy. And I remember when I read about that, I thought, you know, that's the kind of thing that I'd like to be involved in. And that's how it affected me as I was considering a call to ministry and what that meant. And of course, you can't stop there because it does have a relation to the Christmas story or the coming of Jesus. So I want to go now to Luke chapter 4. And you may remember this story, but listen to the words that Luke gives us of this event that took place in Nazareth with Jesus. So Luke chapter 4, verse 16, reading from the same version, New Revised Standard Version, updated edition. When he, referring to Jesus, when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. Time out. Can't let this pass. Notice he said, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. Have you found a church? Have you committed yourself to going to that church? Have you gone often enough to say, this is my church? I know some of you may still be reluctant. I hear this regularly. I heard it from somebody this week that they hadn't really found a church. Well, I know it's a challenge on a lot of levels. It's not because churches aren't interested in you coming. It's just kind of the way it is. But press on. Press on. Be like Jesus. Go to church. Find a church. Be there. He went to the synagogue. Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up and read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And he read this from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Does that sound familiar? Of course it does. It's from Isaiah. It says right here, it comes from Isaiah. So Jesus went to the synagogue. They regularly read from the Torah and the prophets in those days. And typically there was a prescribed reading from the Torah, as best we understand. But when it was your opportunity to read, you could choose a place from the prophets. So it seems likely, as best we know, Jesus stood up and he read this from the prophets. And then he sat down and later he said in the same service, same synagogue service, that the scripture had been fulfilled in their hearing. Well, there's a little more to the story, but it ends up with them deciding to throw Jesus off a cliff. That was pretty serious. But it's also pretty serious to recognize Why did Jesus come? What is the why of Christmas? The why of Christmas is that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. We know that from Jesus' baptism. We know he was the anointed one. Jesus Christ, Christ means the anointed one. 
He came to bring good news to the poor. And and all of us are poor in some ways, if not poverty-stricken or poorer than some with money. We are sometimes poor in spirit. Jesus came to bring good news to us. There's a new king. He's the king. That is good news. He's a righteous king. You don't like politicians. I understand that. But Jesus is the righteous king that he's going to make all the wrongs right one day. He was sent to proclaim release to the captives. You know about anybody who's caught up in in some kind of captivity to sin or to wrongdoing or to some situation that seems to be driving their life in a way it shouldn't. Well, he says he came to proclaim release to the captives. Jesus comes to set us free. And I want to invite you. A lot of people struggle at Christmas time because they think their life is bad and they focus on the negative. Would you lift up your eyes and look at the one who came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor? He came for you. He wants to liberate you from all of that. Go read Isaiah, read Luke, and find that freedom. It's for you this Christmas.